to Seeing Color, a podcast that talks with cultural workers and artists of color in order to expand the area of what is a predominantly white space in the arts. I'm your host, Ziwon Chung. On this episode, I speak with Adil Mansour, a theater director and educator whose work centers around the stories of queer folk and people of color. Adil is a founding member of Pittsburgh's Hatch Arts Collective and a member of the Heinz Endowment's Transformative Arts Process, a grant-making initiative supporting justice-based arts education within Black communities in Pittsburgh. Adil also served as the program director and then artistic director at Dreams of Hope, an LGBTQA youth arts organization for over five years. Adil is currently a Point Scholar and pursuing his MFA as a John Wells Directing Fellow at Carnegie Mellon University. I first learned about Adil through his Creative Mornings talk, which I have attached in the show notes. I then saw his production of Gloria by Brendan Jacob Jenkins over the summer and was very taken by the directing and the story. Adil was so kind as to find some time to sit with me and chat. Our conversation goes all over the place. From Adil's early theater experiences, how to diversify hiring practices, and coping with the white canon. The discussion runs on the long side, so I hope you enjoy it. The, del- the deliverable part of it is very different. Yeah. You want to say some stuff? How's your day? My day was good. I woke up at like eight and then took a shower and had breakfast and came to school. What did you do at school? Uh, I started, we, so the, I'm, I joined the diversity and inclusion committee in, in the theater, in the drama department, at the school of drama. Okay. Um, and we had like a preschool meeting. Did you start this or who started? not at all? Oh, okay. Um, I actually don't know the history of it, but it's, I built, I, my understanding that it's relatively new. It's like the last few years and it's faculty, staff graduate and undergraduate students there's like 15 people on it oh that's good yeah so the meeting was good um it's like i'm glad i'm having a few days i was here like two weeks ago as well doing something for the um, summer program Mm -hmm. and it's been nice i'm glad my first day back isn't on monday like next week because i think that would be like a little bit overwhelming but the fact that i've like had a couple things slow transition feels more calm yeah which is good for me yeah i mean it's good that at least the drama department has this yeah right yeah and i really respect the people on it and that are leading it right right yeah um all right well thank you for coming adil i'm here with adil mansoor and i know adil as a director who someone mentioned to look at your creative mornings talk that was actually the first time I saw it, and you were talking about Felix Gonzalez Torres, who is an artist that I look up to, and uh, and then I saw your show, Gloria, which I thought was really powerful, and so I just wanted to talk to you about your work, where you um, grew up, where you came from, and how you got into theater slash directing. Sweet. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for asking me. Yeah. So why don't you start off with, I don't know, where you uh, grew up, how you got into theater? Sure. Um, Easy questions. Yeah, I guess. Um, I was born in Karachi, Pakistan, 
but very much grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. Okay. I grew up in Addison and Lombard and Schomburg and the smattering of Western suburbs uh-huh. outside of the city. Um, and in the, I feel like I have a very specific theater origin story. Okay. Let's uh, hear it. In the first grade, the, it, so I went to elementary school at like K through six, super public, super big, super diverse. Um, and the, my, and while I was in first grade, the whole school did a play. They did like, I think they did some, um, Andronically is in the lion. Is that the, there's like a Greek play, someone in the lion. Okay. They did that. I have like, it's weird that I can kind of remember that. Yeah. And the two best readers from every grade got to be in that play. And I was not one of them <laughs> for sure. I actually had a really hard time reading at that point in my life. Yeah. Um, it's a skill. Yeah. And I wasn't there and I had, I learned how to read Arabic first. Mm. Um, so I couldn't really proficiently read English until like second or third grade. I was, I started later than a lot of my peers. Um, but I like made a stink about it. I was like, how come they get to do something? I don't like, this seems unfair. This seems like they're having so much fun. They're dressing <laughs> up in white bed sheets, like and they have like leaf crowns on their head. Like I was really jealous. And I think I made a big enough stink that my first grade teacher, Mrs. Steck decided to have a play that anyone could be in, in the first grade. And it was about forest animals and I was a groundhog that helped my gerbil sister learn how to juggle. Uh, and those are my memories of that play. And it was joy, you know? Like, I remember feeling really joyful. And then I was um, in the second grade, our class did a Wizard of Oz. And I remember parts of it really clearly because you could, how you auditioned, um, I'm making air quotes, <laughs> how you auditioned, right? Um, was uh, they, like, you could sign up for any parts that you wanted. And then they just picked names out of hats. And I wanted to be the Wicked Witch from the East, really, or West. I don't know. I forget. I'm mixing them up. I wanted to be the Wicked Witch. Yeah. But I remember thinking a boy could not do it. You you told yourself that. Yeah. Very much told myself that. And Mm. so didn't put my name in the hat for that part. And then Brian Shanks got it. A boy definitely got that witch part. I was like, what? A boy can be the witch? (laughs) I ended up being the King of the Monkeys. (laughs) Wow. Which, it's what I like signed up for. Um, the king of the monkeys. All I right. Know, <laughs> but that was random though. That Well, I put my name in the hat okay, for that okay, part. Because okay. so I thought he'd have a else, cool costume. At least it wasn't someone else saying you got to play the monkey. Right? No. You're yes. Right? There were no, like casting was um, somehow, um, it felt just. Because <laughs> it was up to us, I guess. <laughs> And they were ahead of their times, Ruskin yeah. Elementary School in the 90s. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, silliness and joy translated into my only, like, friend and social circle in middle school. Huh. Like, it very quickly became, like, the only room that I felt ha- excited or, like, the, the best room to be in. Um, and it was one of the few things I felt like I was really good at. Mm. And then by the time I was in high school, it was the only place I knew how to like be myself. Mm. And it sounds so cheesy and so extreme, but I would argue that theater saved my life. And I think that's true for a lot of young folks. Um, In high school, I started to, you know, grapple with my sexuality in a very real way. Um, And I remember my junior year, I was cast in Moliere's Tartuffe. Okay. Um, ridiculous French farce, 1700s. I played Orgon, the like paternal figure, uh-huh. the patriarch, full on patriarch, really, <laughs> um, that believes in the church more than his own family. And um, I got to wear 
what felt like a dress. This mm. is like, you know, period costume piece that went down to my knees and a black curly wig that went down to my back. <laughs> and you're busy I, playing drag. Exactly. Oh my God. Totally. It was yeah. like drag, but somehow the most quote unquote manly I ever yeah. felt. And but, symbolically opposite. Yeah. It just was as nuanced as I wanted gender to be without mm. having any of those words. But I just remember feeling so amazing in those clothes and on that stage that I, at that point, was like addicted for life. So that's a very long answer to your question. No, it's, it's that's a great how, story. Yeah, that's and, the, the school part of that. Journey, right, right. And I think you, when you were talking about it being cheesy, like, I think it's sort of cheesy. It was also like, um, you don't have to hide yourself, you know? Yeah. It's the one place you don't have to. It's a you know a form do a form of code switching. Yeah, and the, all of a sudden folks are laughing with you right. instead of at you at that. Same. Hopefully, yes. You know, <laughs> depends what play and yeah. what what character you're playing. Yeah, right. No, I'm really I'm really grateful that I found that thing, especially in my younger days, and I'm really grateful to those educators. Right. Yeah. And then from there, and, uh, I guess just quickly, why did you move from Pakistan to Chicago? Um, it's very much my parents' choice. <laughs> I was three months old. Right, right, right. That's, <laughs> but, I was implying that. Yeah, I, know. <laughs> I wasn't suggesting you. you I love that. You I decided. That. <laughs> you decided three mom, dad, this place sucks. We're going, we're going to Southside Chicago. <laughs> um, the little bit of history I know, my understanding is that my dad's older brother, was an engineer, is an engineer. He's alive, my uncle. Um, and he was educated and I believe in like the war effort, there was a, um, a surge of men from other people, I think I assume primarily men, coming from other countries and there was a surge of engineers from Pakistan and India mm. that came here in the 70s. I, I don't know that like historically, I just know that from family anecdotes. Right, right. So my uncle came here in the mid-70s um, and then he, with that, with him being here, he's able to get his brothers here, mm. which included my father. Um, and so my father was here by the early eighties. Um, and my parents were in an arranged marriage. My dad went back to Pakistan in 84 to the stories I hear, which could be inaccurate cause they're stories, right? Um, my, my convoluted memory or the story's memory is that, um, he went for something totally unrelated and while there, his family was like, okay, now you need to marry a girl. Um, and so my mom got introduced into the picture because he knew her brothers um, and my dad had a green card. Mm. And so my mom was the youngest in her family. Um, to my understanding, she's the only person in her family that wasn't an arranged marriage. I think the majority of her siblings, if not all of them, were in what my family calls love marriages. Okay. So it's kind of... And which is, are they both sort of accepted or normal or... Yeah. And yeah. within my mom's fam, totally normalized love marriages is this idea that like they chose their partner and arranged that they did not choose their partner. Um, or that they were, you know, there's other circumstances. Right. And so I think my mom married a green card more than she did my mm. dad or my mom was married to mm. a green card um i should ask her um and they moved here like i think a lot of other immigrants moved here in some aspiration for something better having no idea what they meant by better 
And none of us do. <laughs> right? We all want the million dollar jackpot, but and I think a lot in a lot of ways they got I wonder what regrets my mom has. Hmm. Uh, you should ask. I if, should if she wants to talk. Yeah. Yeah. I have a curiosity about it. But I you know, those are some of the facts I know behind their immigration. And then I think the wishes kind of fit into our fictionalized version of the American dream, right. whatever that is. Yeah. Here we are. Yeah, here we are. And so were they supportive of your theater? They didn't know what to do with it? You, they thought it was just like a, a phase that you would eventually pass? I think all of the above. I feel like they were supportive in elementary and middle okay. school. Because it was like, oh, he's getting involved. In That's some, in a something. good thing. Yeah. Right? That's like a sign of future success. College applications. Yeah, want social curricular, Yeah. All that. And I think they wanted me to have friends. I was a very quiet, friendless kid. Really? That's not <laughs> yeah. the person I know. <laughs> yeah, I was very, I mean, at school, I was pretty ostracized and isolated and very quiet. Elementary school. Um, with students. I think I talked a lot with my teachers. But you can't really bring those to your birthday yeah. party. <laughs> yeah, they can't be your real friends. No, <laughs> not as yet. A kid, as a kid. As a kid. kid yeah. Um, and so I think they were, you know... Happy I was involved in something. And then it turned at some point and it turned into, in their minds, a distraction, a gateway. Mm. Um, those aren't the kinds of friends we want him hanging out with. And by kinds of friends, I think they meant girls. I think, you know, like they were, that my parents had an issue with me as I got older, hanging out with so many women. Um, and I think the issue was complicated. I think both the, part of it was men don't hang out with women. They're supposed to be, you know, and I'm coming from a very cis het experience. Yeah, like it's right, very gender. Right, right. This is not how I feel about gender now, but like there was definitely like men and women don't hang out. But I think there, so there was this sense of like the obligation to my gender that I'm supposed to be hanging out with men. It's like, you know, I, am I dating? There's that worry that many parents had of a lot of their Desi boys. And in addition, I know there's also the layer of like, what does it mean he's hanging out with all these girls and picking up on the fact that like I was different than a lot of the boys around me. Um, and I think, you know, they were of course aware of my queerness. At they the, were, I mean, I think they were at least aware of my gender non-normativity mm. that right. me and my mom got along so well. I was super excited to help her with like, she sewed a lot and she made a lot of her clothes. I was always artistically inclined. I, was quote unquote sensitive. I hated sports. <laughs> I mean, it's like the list laundry list of stereotypes. Yeah. I read the babysitter club books, like cover to cover, like every single book. And that's what I spent all my allowance on for years and years and years, <laughs> years. Uh, and finally, my mom at some point figured out that those books were supposed to be for quote unquote girls, hmm. according to whoever right, makes them. She those. probably didn't know what they were. No, no, they were books. Yeah. There were books and they and I bought them through like the school book the catalog, book fair, the book fair. Yeah. yeah, I remember those. Those were awesome. Yeah. You know, so it was even sanctioned by school, so she wasn't worried that they could be bad books, right? Or teaching you bad things, whatever that means. Anyway, I don't know. But they were teaching me about caretaking mm -hmm. and communication and feminism—the <laughs> worst of all things. <laughs> I don't think that. <laughs> um. And so I think all of that was coming to life and they were connecting it pretty quickly to theater, which isn't wrong. 
a lot of those openings for me did like my mind opened because of theater in a lot of ways. So they weren't actually wrong in the connections they made. I would assume they were wrong in the ways they deal dealt with them. Right. And I, would, I would argue. Yeah. yeah. And they tried to squash it. Um, so there's all happening in high school. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, why, why? And questioning it and threatening it. Um, but then they went through a divorce, which led to a lot of moving and a lot of income instability. And so I was working to support family stuff, um, which all of that led to a lot of autonomy. Mm-hmm. And like, when your kid's paying the water bill, you can't like tell him that he can't be in theater. <laughs> right. Or at least that's how it worked in our family. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so there is, there, you know, there was just, it was just, um, they didn't come to shows, right? I also didn't invite them, you mm. know. They came to see me as Daddy Warbucks and Annie in the sixth grade. Okay. And that was the end of that. I think. Yeah. They'll listen to this and be like, that's not true. But I think I don't have a memory of my mom ever seeing anything in high school. And I know my dad didn't. He Mm. wasn't a huge part of my life in high school. We became closer again Mm. after high school. And and all of that was to the point that I did not study theater undergrad. I studied learning and organizational change. Because of all that happened in high school, you think? I think that was part of it. I just didn't think theater could be a career. I didn't know how to tell my mom I was in a study theater. I also believed her. I was also was like, this is not something for me. Right. I've never seen an Indian guy in television, right. much less in the right. theater. Um, or movies. Or in any sort of at least important role model sort of way. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. the only time I remember Muslims being represented on film was either Aladdin, and I wouldn't call those people Muslims, <laughs> but like part of our culture, and then was Executive Decision, do you remember this movie? Yeah. This was like, this was 90s or the aughts. My mosque like boycotted the movie and a lot of mosques did because it was like another representation of Muslims as terrorists that were like on a plane hijacking a plane. You right. know, I think it was like the 10th movie that year or something that was about hijackers. Right. And of course I there were Muslims. Air Force One with Harrison Ford. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's that kind of thing. And so that, that was what I knew. Um, so I just didn't even, I couldn't have ever thought the theater was a possibility. Mm-hmm. But I was at Northwestern, which had an incredible student theater world. So you didn't have to major in it. And this, be part of it. Mm-hmm. And the student theater thing was my whole life. I mean, every corner of it. I really loved it. Um, and then discovered while I was at school that they had a drama double and was able to double major in drama in the School of Arts and Sciences and get like a literature background. Yeah. So I'm grateful. And then so what was how did what was the first thing that you did when you were in college doing drama? Um, I was actually part of student theater the fall quarter of my freshman year. Um, I got to be in Cloud Nine okay. by Carol Churchill, which is to this day still one of my favorite plays in the world about colonization mm. and self-love and ancestry um, and memory and collective memory. It's so well rendered. The first part of the play takes place in like the 18th century, in the 1800s in colonized Africa, Mm -hmm. like a British colony. Um, And then that same group of people in the second act is transported to the 1970s in London. Mm -hmm. And they've all aged 20-ish years. And there's no questions asked, you know, Mm. as to the setting. It's like, why? Who cares why? Yeah. But you get to see these people in these two different 
places and you connect those dots, thinking through the ways in which colonization is very much impacting our contemporary day to day. And in the first act, I got to play the matriarch, which is how the play is written. Um, so I'm like 18. I've just come out of the closet. I show up at school and I get cast as a colonizing housewife. <laughs> and I loved it. Because the play is very critical and really smart. Yeah. And the director was really clear. And I remember lear- quickly learning. I mean, I don't even think I knew the British colonized India and Pakistan. That Pakistan didn't exist when I was 18 years. Like, you know, right. at that point. I'm just starting to learn that history. Right. And that play was a par- first part of that. Right. Wow. Um, and then in the second act, I played like a leather jacket wearing, cigarette smoking, like sexy stud. <laughs> um, both creatures... So outside of who I thought I was. Right. But so deeply a part of what I wanted to be. And to go, and like in that first act, I wore like a beaded wedding gown and had a parasol and a sorority sister did my makeup. I wish I could find pictures. Yeah. Sounds wonderful. It was, I think about it so fondly. And I love Carol Churchill. I'll have to check out that play. Any play by her. I'll have to check it out. It's really good. And then from there, how'd you transition from acting to directing? Um, because of the student theater world at school, there were many, many opportunities for students to direct. And my junior year, there's a last minute slot that opened up and there's an opportunity to apply. And there's a group of people talking and someone was like, Adil, are you going to apply? And someone else was like, oh, Adil's more producer type. He's not going to apply. Because I thought like arts management was like, it made sense between like right. my majors. Right, because you're drama and business. I was right. like, oh, great. I'm an arts manager. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I was like, why, why don't, what do you mean I can't be something? What do you mean? It was the first grade itch again. I was like, mm. what do you mean not me? Yeah. Um, that's an interesting part of my character, but it is there. Um, and so I was like, okay, look into that. And I, had had ideas about what I thought directing was. And I pitched a play, The Game of Love and Chance by Marivaux, uh-huh. French farce. Um, and I got it. And I remember being in that room and suddenly realizing that that's where I was always supposed to be. Mm. Um, it's I have a hard time focusing. In general, if you like watch me clean, like if I'm cleaning the kitchen, it's like I put two dishes away, I'll like clean the oven, but I only get the spray down and then I'll like open the fridge door and forget it's there and I'll fold the ice cubes. It's like really absurd. And that's how I'm about pretty much anything in my life except a rehearsal. Mm-hmm. When I am directing or when I'm teaching, which feel really similar now for me. You've laser focus. Totally. Mm-hmm. And it's that focus that I am. I wish I could be focused on other parts of my life. I'm just not. Do you think it's because you love those things so much that you can make, that there's a switch or something else? I don't know. I mean, I think I love them because I can focus. Mm. And I think I focus because they just pull out all of the things I care about. It involves analysis of text. It involves communicating larger ideas. It involves asking really big questions. It involves supporting artists, thinking Mm. aesthetically, thinking organically, responding to self, being alive in the moment, deep research, uh, critical thought about where we are in the world, the the potentiality to imagine change. Like it's everything. It's all the things I want to do in one chair. So maybe part of the, like part of, what feels like focus is actually the most scattered thinking mm-hmm. of all. Like right, I could right. be so scattered and it's like, yes, let's try this and this and this and this right, and this right. and this. I just feel so alive in yeah. a rehearsal room. That's awesome. And then from there, how from Northwestern, how'd you end up in Pittsburgh? Oh my gosh. So 
I graduated 2008. So did I. Really? Yeah. From where? Cornell. Nice. Where is that? Ithaca. Okay, great. New York, upstate New York. Nice. Um, graduated 2008, which, as you know, was a complicated year to graduate. Mm-hmm. You know? Recession hit really hard. Right? And joyful at the same time, because I graduated in like two months later, Obama's like winning. This is like really yeah. amazing time to be 22. I was, you know, I, I, I was, um, I did, I was a 22 when I graduated. Um, and I was in Chicago for a couple of years as um, the artist in residence coordinator at Urban Gateways, which was an arts education um, nonprof in Chicago. And I got to work with teaching artists. I worked on school partnerships between teaching artists and classroom teachers. And I did, I started to do professional development for teaching artists, Mm. but I was surrounded by artists. That's what that job did for me. It did a lot of things, but one of the things I'm so grateful to it for was like really integrate me into an interdisciplinary artist culture and community. Right. And I was like, this is amazing. Um, And then uh, two years into that Pittsburgh came up because my partner got into grad school um here in pittsburgh um and it just made sense we were like yes we should i don't know uh let's check it out we should check it out yeah it's and only he eight was, hours away driving yeah it's, it's really close, close. and yeah. he was in a one-year program and a part of me was like what program was this it was the um master's in um cultural and literary studies okay the, the, um the in the english department here at cmu okay at carnegie mellon um so he studied cultural studies and there were reasons I needed to leave Chicago. I was starting to feel stuck. I was starting to, you know, I'd been there for my whole life and I was curious about being in a new city and there was this opportunity to try and do that. And so him and I and our friend Alexis, the three of us, because Alexis was going to move to California and we're like, come to Pittsburgh instead. And she did. (laughs) Um, We were like, let's try out Pittsburgh. Um, And I thought I moved here to stop making art. Because really? in Chicago, I was still, yeah. You were getting burnt out? Well, in Chicago, I was like doing all this teaching artistry work and then trying to do theater on the side. And it was exhausting and totally like, not economically stable. It's so hard to way. do any sort of thing creative after a nine to five. Yeah. It was like, you know, and that nonprofit job was like an 80 hour a week job. Yeah. 40 hours was like a, like a vacation week. And so I was like, okay, I need to like grow up and get a retirement job. And I also was hungry to work with students one-on-one. And so I got a job at a high school mm-hmm. as a career and college counselor. Really? Mm-hmm. My official title is transition manager. I feel like you would have been a good college counselor. Or a counselor. High school counselor? Mm-hmm. Okay, high school counselor, yeah. I loved it. I loved it. I had done a lot of, um, I, was, I worked in the admissions office at my undergrad and did, I was a tour guide and then became what they called a senior counselor. And I also, you know, was studying learning and org change. And a lot of my work was looking at how schools function. Mm. Um, and so part of my studies talked over and over again about how people that come from economic situations similar to mine can never go to schools like Northwestern. And here I was sitting at that place reading it. Um, and so then what, what were you thinking? You read it. I mean, I, I felt, I, I don't know. I felt torn and lost and confused and angry and proud, but that pride is pretty um, dangerous. Mm-hmm. You know, that's like, yeah, it, it gets to the whole, like I worked hard. Why can't you work hard? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's really a, it, that I, I'm 
that needs to be checked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and it was for me in different ways and I'm thankful, but I think that can lead to some, just it leads to perpetuating the same system that right, we're in. Right, it doesn't right. change anything and it doesn't make it possible for a multitude of people to have access to all the different kinds of opportunities that might help them be successful, full-fledged human beings. God forbid. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all of those things are coalescing. And then I'm working at this nonprofit in Chicago that's connecting me to schools all across the city and into the suburbs. And I'm seeing the disparities. You just like walk from one school to the next and you're just like, this makes no sense. Right. This makes no sense. And so I thought college and career counseling within a city school could be a way to understand those things more. Right. Um, and I loved that job in terms of the young people I was working with. I still feel very close to many of those young folks and really adored that work. I was really lucky. I was at a high school that prioritized post high school planning Mm. um, that didn't romanticize college. That was realistic about opportunities and gates and what that meant. And so the school very much lined up with my politic around education policy. I didn't have to lie to folks or pretend, but I could also like be uh, hopeful and non-judgment, non-judgmental in a room with them. But the day-to-day reality of that job just wasn't who I am. Mm. Within nine months, I was so depressed. Mm. I would cry in the bathroom weekly. Um, I was so miserable for a lot of reasons that had nothing to do with my actual students. Um, More at the system that was in place, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of other things. And just waking up every single day knowing that I wasn't going to make any art. Yeah. And And that all of a sudden growing up started to feel like giving up on dreams that those two things became synonymous. Right. Uh, someone just, someone reminded me of the saying, like, you know, your younger years will be your best years. Right. And like, does it have to be? No. Right, yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. So all of that came to a head and I quit kind of in a stormy fashion. I <laughs> do regret <laughs> how that exactly went down. It wasn't my, I wasn't in the best of states. Some some bridges are burned. Um, I hope not. Oh, okay, they could have been. They were close. <laughs> I was like, I came back like the day after spring break and walked into the principal's office. I was like, I'm putting in my two weeks. I can't do this anymore. And he was like, Come back at the end of the day, <laughs> and we'll talk. <laughs> and at the end of the day, I was like, You are right. I will wait until graduation, uh-huh. and I can watch my seniors cross the okay. stage, which makes a lot more sense. Yeah. And I quote unquote graduated with them. Um, and then here I was in Pittsburgh, yeah. paying a third of what I paid for rent in Chicago, quickly making a community of friends that I deeply cared about, and was had the opportunity to work with a lot of people really fast, and found myself working at the Andy Warhol Museum, working with the queer teen arts organization Dreams of Hope, working with Stacy Pearl, the choreographer, mm-hmm. um, working a lot with Kelly Strayhorn Theater, and it's just I'm working with MGR, which is an arts ed nonprof. Um, Was the speed since. that you were working with these organizations because it's a small city? You think? I think part of it is that um, I also had really great experiences in Chicago. You know, I'd worked with some of the best teaching artists in Chicago mm-hmm. and a lot of my focus at Northwestern ended up kind of veering towards arts education. And I started a children's theater company in at Northwestern and was immersed in arts ed. And so 
And because of my high school work all of a sudden for a year, I had an understanding of the charter and public school systems Mm. in Pittsburgh in a way that a lot of artists might not always get to because they're not in the school system. Right, right. Um, And so I also have a sensitivity to teachers, to classroom teachers. And so all of that, I think, added to putting me in a position that made working within ed departments really effective. Right. Um, And I knew, I knew people that were able to really support and help. So I credit a lot of this to Maritza Mosquera, who's like an amazing artist here in Pittsburgh. And she happened to be at Urban Gateways the time I was there in Chicago. She's part of who hired me. Mm-hmm. She, I very much credit as one of my like key mentors in my teaching and artistic practice. She had, she's from Pittsburgh or she's been living in Pittsburgh for a long time and she was coming back to Pittsburgh and she had like told me about this magical city <laughs> and she had worked at the Warhol for a long time. Um, she was, you know, I would say one of the founding uh, brains behind that education department at the Warhol. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she was working on an exhibition my first year here around global religions and pop art. Um, and the first exhibition was looking at the Quran. And so they had like an advisor team of uh, folks connected to the Muslim faith in one way or another. And I was brought in um, as an educator and an artist that grew up Muslim. And that opened the door for me at the Warhol. And part of my work on that committee, for which I was not being paid, I was like, I have an idea about a teen program that I could do with my high school students. Mm. I think some of these young people would be really interested in a dinner happening that's curated around the exhibition. And we Mm. can like break bread and talk about pop and Islam. Wow. Um, That sounds like a great event. Yeah. I mean, the young people rocked it. They rocked it. And that turned into like a three-year-long series of events like that called Dine and Discuss, Mm. which were like highly conceptualized dinner happenings created by teenagers in response to contemporary art exhibits. So teenagers were in charge? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was my job to make sure that the classroom door was open, that there was pizza waiting for them when they got there, and that they had space and time to talk about what they wanted to talk about. So Mm -hmm. I facilitated the room, but the ideas and the process and the thinking, all of that was the young folks, which is what made it so exciting. And at that point in my life, I didn't understand how awesome what they were doing was. As I've learned more and more about like contemporary performance work, I'm like, oh my, this was so, we were so on the pulse. Yeah. Uh, Only you're white. You'd be, you'd be in the history books. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's depressing. <laughs> um, I feel really good about that work. And that opened up a lot of things. Yeah, I think it was, a you know, a fair combination of luck and hard work and privilege and being in the right place at the right time mm-hmm. and the city. I do think at that time, and I still think now, Pittsburgh is excited about ideas and there is resource here in a way that there isn't in Chicago. But I also have to recognize that like my lens of Pittsburgh is one of a cis man that is, you know, Pakistani and that there's a reality to all of those intersections that have impacted the kind right. of work I get to do. Right. Uh, and you being associated with different institutions, having had a college education. Yeah. You know. From a very like from a very fancy school with a very fancy degree. Yeah. Yeah, no, all of that's very real. And so I think the only way I know how to think through it 
on a, on a consistent basis is gratitude. Mm. Right. I think there's a lot of other ways for me to like process it, but gratitude, I think right. leads the way for sure. Right. In a sense, giving back. Or, yeah, I mean, I think that word can be used, this idea of giving back, but it's also just what gets my rocks off. Like, it's the work I like. Right. Like, I love being in a room with learners pushing forward our agenda, <laughs> our queer as hell agenda. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> To make the kind of world I want to live in. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's pretty selfish. Right. Well, I mean, ideally, I think the most maybe happy artists or people are the ones who are able to have both things work at once, right? Like, in a way, somehow, whatever moral guidance you have fit in with the agenda of also helping people out. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Agreed. No, and I'm, that is definitely a driving force. And the people in this city, especially the younger folks in this city, have been awesome to work with, at least the people I've gotten to work with. And I recognize I, I get to work with young people who want to show up at the Warhol mm-hmm. and have the ability to show up at the Warhol and want to be a part of a queer teen theater program. It's a very specific person. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are the exact kinds of persons who make me feel some semblance of okay in the idea of tomorrow. You know, they if, if there is a universe in which those young people get to lead, we'll be better but right that's what we're figuring out yeah did has your parents turned around with your queerness your identity no um my father passed uh four years ago um and i did come out to him before he passed and we were fine you know there was a time in my life when i was a teenager where i thought that would be the end of us communicating that is not what happened it's much more complicated and nuanced and over drinks i can tell you my coming out story to my dad it involves tears and pizza um (laughs) what else how else would you do it (laughs) tears and pizza (laughs) um (laughs) it's good pizza um (laughs) chicago's good pizza exactly but everyone thinks it's the deep dish in chicago that's the important pizza it's really the crispy thin crust Mm. that like makes it so special there's one place that my brother lives there, so I visited him a bunch of times. And there's one place that he he kept recommending that was like on the top list, but then it shut down a few years ago and had trouble opening up again. I don't know. Because yeah. Giordano's and Luminati's uh, are the big ones, and okay. they're all still open. Yeah. yeah. There's know. one he pointed out, and then every time I went, just the timing it's didn't close. work. And then, but you know, pizzas open and close all the time. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And there's other great pizzas. And the beauty, the, I think the best thing about pizzas. I think almost anyone could do it. The, uh, the yeah. ingredients are pretty simple. Right. You've got bread, tomato sauce, and cheese, you right. know, and you just got to like work with those three simple ingredients, which aren't simple, but, <laughs> you know, it's yeah. pretty pared down. And you, you know? can make it your own. Yeah. Um, yes. So coming out definitely involved pizza. And then with my mom, uh, her and I really, I don't think we've ever, or I don't think, I know. We've never talked about it. And so there's a specific version of the story that I can tell in which I could say the sentence, I'm not out to my mom. Mm -hmm. But I think that's not the full truth at all because literally queer for a living. (laughs) Um, And I do things like this, you know, I'm sitting at this public interview that people will hear. Um, Hopefully. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And this, and so, and, and I know my I know my mom knows how to use Google. Like we all know, we know that we know. And uh, yeah, I mean, I looked you up on Google, and there's just tons of stuff about you online. <laughs> yeah. So like, and you talk about it. So yeah, pretty openly. Yeah. So and most recently, 
there's a lot of public information around um, me as a point scholar. So mm-hmm. I'm part of the Point Foundation, which is an LGBT uh, support for students um, as part of making grad school possible. And that definitely, my mom in her own ways brought that up. Um, and so I'm, I'm not, we've never talked, I don't even know what the right words around it. It's very tense. Um, it is not something that I know how to talk to her about. And so I'm trying my hardest to also not make assumptions about what she thinks about it, mm. but I have a lot. <laughs> well, it's sort of like when you have a close family member with different political ideas and you, but you love them and they love you. So you have a sort of un, you have an assumed agreement to not talk about it for the sake of both parties' mental sanity. Yeah. No, I think that's very apt. Um, yeah, I mean, she is incredibly religious. She's she's studying the Quran right now. Um, in terms of like she's getting like a graduate degree. Oh, really? Yeah, she's okay. like studying it to become an alima, um, which is like a, a a a woman leader in Islamic studies. I think is what that word means, an alima. Um, and she wears, you know, she wears the hijab off in the burqa, and she's like very deeply invested in her Islamic faith and knows a lot and agrees with the most constricted versions of the Mm. teachings and is also like one of the biggest like heroes of my life, like has done some of the most feminist, most interesting, beautiful, wonderful things. She worked as a social worker for uh, domestically abused folks for years and years and was really, really good at her job because she understood it intimately, you know? So She's nuanced like any other human being. And for a long time, it was just, oh, you just don't talk about this one thing. As if it was somehow like just one part of this one separate part of me. But so I was like, okay, I just don't have to say the word gay on the phone. But then I was like, okay, don't say the word gay and theater on the phone. Then so don't say the word gay and students on the phone, gay and job, gay. And like more and more and more parts of my life are coalescing into right. just being me. Right. So it feels like right now on the phone, all I can talk about is like, yeah, where, lunch. where are you? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So I think at some point that will, I hope that will change. And I understand that I'm probably the lead agent in that change. One of, at least an instigator. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. That's all I got. <laughs> she's great. I mean, I just was with her, was with her last week. Yeah. She's still very funny. And yeah. She knows she can look at my face and know exactly how I'm doing. And that's a good Even that's, the way that's I say hello on the phone. Feeling. Yeah. Yeah. She's, she is my everything. Yeah. And I am a result of her. Yeah. Um, and so is my way of navigating this planet. The The, the issues that I care about and the, the loudness with which I talk about them are because of who she was and is it's not some coincidence. Right. Right. Yeah. You can, you can't, you know, you can't extricate yourself from who you are and your histories. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then I guess in terms of your jobs also intersecting with your life, um, I know you worked at the dream, you're the artistic director of dreams of hope. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I, so dreams of hope 
is a Pittsburgh-based nonprofit supporting trans and queer students through the, through arts. Mm-hmm. I was on that staff for over five years as first program director, then artistic director. Um, I recently transitioned off staff. Oh, okay. And like recently, as in like a week ago. Oh, okay. <laughs> ah! Have to uh, update that. <laughs> what was that? You'll have to update that. Yeah. Every, so today. Yes, yeah, so I have to like update their websites and everything. Yeah. Um, so it's a new change. And it's a signal for goodness across the board. Like the organization itself, I should talk about first, right, has been around 15 plus years supporting LGBTQIA young people. Um, And two ways to think about the work. One is like what we call our Keystone program. It's theatric. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's what people mostly know us for. It's a theater ensemble of 13 to 21 year olds who are LGBTQIA plus identified in some way. And they create a piece of theater over a year um, about. And the young people will work with a group of professional artists and together we'll generate new work about queer history, queer theory, their reality as young folks now and make a play. And then the other large portion of the work is also working with young folks and people who work with young folks in schools, community centers, churches, all across the city and the region and the country really to support the elimination of transphobia and homophobia through art making and teaching. Mm. And so that looks like many things. An example of that is what we call our school program, which is a lot of school-based partnerships. Mm. So one specific, so we'll partner with schools. One specific example, we partnered with Brashear High School here in Pittsburgh a few years back. They were producing the Laramie Project Okay, uh, on their own. They're like putting that play up. And they asked us, you know, I they reached out. To see that. It's a great play. I, I was, I was, I was in Wyoming actually in May. <gasps> Whoa! And I was about an hour and a half away. The schedule didn't allow me to go to actually visit the site, but one of the other residents at the residency that I was, they went on their way home, and they said actually the site that they're at it it exists, but whoever owns the property around it did everything that they could to make it seem like it didn't exist there. Like there's no signs um, and it kind of just looks almost like not there, you know, but yeah. I mean, I have to wonder what that means, but um, it's a really important play both in terms of its content and the fact that it's talking about Laramie and the Matthew Shepard murder. Mm -hmm. And it's also a really important play in its form. You know, tectonic theater did something very different with that text and and at a mainstream level. And um, it changed the mainstream understanding of that form of doing this like docudrama style moment theater, they called it. And so Brashear is doing that, was doing that play in like 2014, I think it's been a few years and they reached out to dreams. How can you help? Like, what could you do? I think not like they, they did it every year. They were doing it that year. Oh, okay. Okay. So that was the, the high school play. You okay. know, sometimes they do right. Annie and sometimes right, they right. do Hello Dolly. And this year they're yeah. doing Laramie Project. I think they did Boys and Girls or Guys and Dolls. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is more or less what Guys and Dolls means. Isn't yeah, it? no, I know. It's <laughs> <laughs> funny. Um, and what we, you know, we couldn't like really help them like sell tickets or make the play anything. But what we realized what, what we could really do well is set up their students to watch that play critically. So one of our teaching artists, Kavanaugh Quick, um, amazing. And they were our um, school program coordinator at that time. They're on staff. They devised a residency program 
where they worked with three classrooms, a history classroom, an English classroom, and I think like a journal, like a journalism classroom. They worked in those three classrooms over a month and were meeting with the students on a consistent basis to talk about the role artists play in representing the news. And so all of a sudden we're looking at like standard curriculum um, needs in terms of primary and secondary sources. So it's like common core standard, mm-hmm. um, a bowl, whatever that means. Um, but we can talk the language of assessment and evaluation. And we're looking at primary sources and secondary sources. And our teaching artist, Cav, decided to focus on Stonewall. Okay. And looking at the news that happened around Stonewall. And then at that, right at that time, and the history is that, you know, Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera were critical components of that, both POC, trans women. Mm-hmm. And then there was a trailer that had just come out for a movie about Stonewall. I heard, I heard it was terrible. It's terrible. I mean, just the ter- trailer alone totally whitewashes yeah, yeah. the moment itself and replaces Sylvia and Marsha with like a blonde, white, cis boy. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, this is so easy. Like, yeah. come on. Um, and so the students looked at that as an example. Right. Right. Of like, what is the responsibility artists have when looking at the news and what happens to the news and how do we understand it? And then at, in the same class, they also looked at the Matthew Shepard murder news. Mm. They didn't read the play in the class, right? They just looked at the news. Started out with the news. Yeah. Right. So we focus on primary sources. And then they go watch the play. And then after they saw the play, the students were asked to engage in conversations with each other about how they thought the play dealt with the news. Mm-hmm. How is this secondary source compared to the primary sources right. they had looked at? And so we're trying to set up critical thinkers. We're trying to set up people who can investigate arts in a very delicious and exciting way that ownership of the information is on them. Right. And also we're trying to show teachers and curriculum designers that the material can be queer. It can be intersectional. It can be talking about race. Like we're still doing the standards. They think you, so a lot of them are pushing back saying it can't be, or I don't think anyone's, well, I haven't met teachers that are pushing back, but I know teachers that simply just don't have time hmm. and the materials that are the low hanging fruit, the quickly available material right. is canon. Yeah. 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 Um, and often it just takes a lot more time and energy to find this material, course, right. especially if it's not where you're an expert. Right. Um, but that's what Dreams of Hope is good at. Right. You know, it has excellent artists and teachers and thinkers that are deeply embedded in queer history, theory, and arts practice. Yeah. Uh, so that's an example of what else it looks like. And mm-hmm. that place is what has completely molded me into the teacher that I am. That's where I learned what I think is important about a classroom. Right. No, I find that inspiring. I wish you were a teacher of mine yeah. at some point. We'll get to teach each other. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and then from there, at some point, you started Hatch. Yeah. And I don't know if you want to talk about that. Sure. The inception of that with Paul and Nicole, too, right? Yeah. Um, so 2012? Mm-hmm. I have to think about the years. They're all like mixing. Yeah. But it's been over five years. I don't know you had the time to do all this. My my timeline is pretty simple. It's like, (laughs) it was like one thing after another. Well, they're all connected. No, I know. I I totally understand. (laughs) I'm just, I'm sort of amazed. You know? I mean, I don't know. I haven't slept in a while. Um, 2012, I suddenly, I was realizing, not suddenly, I was realizing Pittsburgh was a place I could make art and pay rent at the same time. And that felt like a miracle. And I and Paul Cruz and I went to undergrad together and were dear friends and did not make art together then, but knew about knew about each, each other. other's practice, mm-hmm. you know, talked about it all the time. Mm-hmm. And we're like, 
and I and Paul was a filmmaker um, and was looking into playwriting and had, had written a couple plays that he was excited about. And I was really hungry to direct. And we both were like, let's do this. Let's make a play together. I think we could do something. Um, and I was like, yeah, let's do it in Pittsburgh. And so I convinced him to move out here. Oh, wow. Um, so that we could make chickens in the yard together. <laughs> and he did. And that was the right time in his life for a lot of reasons as well. Right. Yeah. And then like my boyfriend also did this with one of his best friends from undergrad. Like there's five of us from this Chicago community that have moved out here in the last five years. It's great when you have that sort of community. I knew, I knew a bunch of my sister's friends. She, a bunch of them just were all from Amherst and they all moved out to LA for one reason or another. It makes a transition to a yeah. place like that so much more sustainable. Yeah. So I'm really grateful. And Paul had been working on this idea for a play about people being chickens <laughs> and a lot more. And the, there was a version of the script that existed, I think, that before he even moved here, he got here. And then we wanted to put it up the next summer because we're ridiculous. Um, and we knew that the two of us could not do it alone. And I had worked with Nicole Shiro at Kelly Strayhorn when I did the summer camp there a while ago. And she was their operations manager and she understood logistics and coordinating art making happening in a way that we didn't. Um, so we pulled her in. We met with her at Kelly's oh. in East Lib a long time ago. I'm surprised it still exists there. I think in this. That whole place there. is changing so fast. So quickly. That is still there. Um, and we decided to do this play. And it, it's called Chickens. And it, we did it at FE Gallery in Lawrenceville that doesn't exist anymore. It's a very cool bike shop now. And did that play um, against what felt like uh, all the odds. We like crowdsourced the funding uh everyone got paid like 54 dollars or something <laughs> um but i was really proud of that work and we sold out our very tiny house we had three nights you know that first we had one weekend yeah it was like 70 people a night yeah um but somehow someone saw it that told quantum theater and carla boos about it pretty quickly after it went up and carla and i had already met and worked together a little bit you know, I emailed a hundred people right before right, I right. moved you, here you gotta. and she was one of the few that reached out and she reaches out and we had drinks at Kelly's <laughs> and then she cast me in a staged reading of something uh, that first year I was here. And so we had a little bit of a relationship and she called me and Paul and Nicole in and presented to us this idea to have us reproduce our play um, with through quantum, through quantum, mm -hmm. with the resources that quantum would bring to it, you know, a hundred and. 20 people had seen it or no 210 people had seen it when we did it and they could connect it to 1500 people mm. and we could have a chance to try again on a different scale and learn how a union works an actor's union works learn how site-specific work happens for carla and for quantum you know they have a very specific model that we all have a lot to learn from and i would say that that was a pretty hinge moment in my career yeah for a lot of reasons yeah i mean it connected me to the professional landscape here in pittsburgh up until then i also as an artist in terms of community was embedded and enmeshed in the museum and mm. dance community right which i still love and i would argue is where i come from right kelly strayhorn and Annie warhol stacy pearl stacy pearl but working with quantum and carla and all of a sudden, very seasoned, really powerful, wonderful actors that, you know, were part of the theater landscape here just changed my access. And it also helped coalesce, I think, or cement 
the things that we also realized that Hatch was really good at. Hmm. Like, oh, we are really thoughtful about the way identity goes down and is thought through in a project in terms of teammates. And we're thinking about this a lot. Right. And what are the plays that are, or um, scripts that are chosen? How is it directed? How is it cast? Yeah. I mean, when it, one, one way, talking about identity and inclusion and diversity can be very big and really hard. And often, I think one of the things that makes it really challenging is it can be so vague. Hiring isn't vague. <laughs> but even that, we, that even it has trouble. You do, you know? right? But hiring yeah. is a very specific task. Right. And there are things, there are, there are logistic details that make it possible. Mm. And I think it's a really efficient way to start and investigate where things are and aren't working. Um, and so Hatch takes the hiring process um, as a part of our creative endeavor. It is just as we are just as rigorous about the ways in which we create our hiring structures that we are about how we investigate a script or think about light design, you know, like rigor is a part of an artist's life. Right. But we apply that same rigor in a way to our human resource practice and approach it creatively with enthusiasm that I don't know if that's what happens everywhere. I think can there's you give a lot me, of dread. Can you give me an example of that sort of um, creative hiring practice, diversity? Yeah. So Dreams of Hope is a better way for me to think about it. Okay. Uh, so one example, we when I was I started grad school a year ago, and so when I was starting grad school, I could no longer be the lead teacher at Dreams of Hope. Right. And I had to not, I couldn't work there full time. So we were going to replace my position. And so the things that I think we did differently in replacing my position, we took a year. To find someone. Mm-hmm. So we gave the position time. We gave ourselves mistake time. Mm. So you have to have that. We also recognized that the hiring process has a lot of barriers that are already built into it. Mm-hmm. So in terms of who can get to a live interview. Right. Right. So our first interview was all, we could do phone call, Skype, or in person. Um, and then for our second interview, we did want to have an interview with our young folks. We wanted the potential teachers to meet our young folks. Right. And to be in a room with them. And it wasn't perfect at all, but one, but some certain elements that we did that I, I think helped in terms of being able to diversify who we could, who could access that position. One from the first interview to the second, we had a month's time. Hmm. A lot of time, the turnaround is like five days or right, a week. Right. It's like you need to be here in a week. Yeah. Only certain people with certain kinds of jobs and certain kind of life situations can, can do show that. up in a week. Mm-hmm. It involves a lot of privilege and resource already. Right. We paid for everyone's flight and everyone's stay. Wow. Like It just wasn't even a question if they could pay for it or not. Right, right. And so we made sure that that was taken care of. We... Um, Gave options of when they could come. Right. It wasn't like you have to be here on this Tuesday at noon. Oh, you have to have a babysitter. Sorry, I can't fix that. Yeah. You know, I was like, when are you available? When does this fit into your life? Right. So that kind of flexibility and spongibility, I think, opens up that position to more and more folks. Right. Um, And then we had our young folks involved in the process, um, which came with its own challenges, but I am grateful that there was transparency. I think transparency is another thing. I think when you're trying to do a process really quickly, you have to take shortcuts. Yeah. And often those shortcuts involve hiring people, you know, or are already in conversation with. And a lot of times that leads to hiring people that fit into different 
hegemonies with you. Or, or it perpetuates the system. Yeah. Yeah. And so how do you surprise yourself? You have to yeah. give yourself time and you have to give yourself room. You have to build a budget. And all that also involves privilege and resource and access. So it is this like circle that spins out of control. Right. But I think admitting that a job search takes a lot of time. Yeah. And that it has to be, a, you it can't be in a position where like, oh my gosh, no one applied. We're just going to hire this person. Yeah. How do you set yourself up so that's not the case? Now, I knew I was going to grad school a year earlier. Yeah, and they had time to prepare. Yeah. If you, I, you didn't do the two-week thing with your... No, <laughs> no. It's like, I can't deal with this anymore. <laughs> Peace, I'm up. I've got two weeks. <laughs> and people have to quit sometimes and yeah. things change. So under crisis, it is different. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's why mo- at least, I guess... Positions with the resources can have an interim, right? Yeah. Interim president, interim, whatever. Exactly. And then in terms of like casting and building a design team, I think with casting, we only look at plays that are representing the worlds in which we want to live or do live in. Um, I don't live in a world where everyone is a white man. If I'm in the room, immediately not everyone is a white man. So... I don't want my theater to look like that. Right. Unless that play is talking about that specifically, right? Like Young Jean Lee's Straight White Men, all about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> cool play, and it matters that everyone in the cast is a white man. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so we're looking at scripts that already set us up for success in terms of having people coming from different experiences to be in the text. Right. And that's part of our artistic interest. Right. Is talking about identities and uh, uh, intersectionality in a critical and interesting and nuanced and delicate and delicious way. And so when we were looking at Gloria by Brandon Jacob Jenkins, he's very specific about his casting. Like Miles, Sean, and Rashad have to be played by a young African-American man. By the same person? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that reads in their 20s, you know, in their early 20s. And then Kendra has to be played by a Korean or Chinese-American woman mm-hmm. that reads in her mid to late 20s. Um, and so that is who our casting pool was. Mm-hmm. And we also think about when you're looking, when you're watching the stage, what you're looking at impacts everything you think about. So if you're looking at a Latinx person in a role, their identity is immediately a part of the story that they're telling. Of course. And so- Just by presence. Right? Mm -hmm. And so we're not saying that that makes it better or worse. What I think it makes it is connected. And you have to think through, then what story are you communicating? Mm -hmm. And is that the story you want to communicate? And as long as you have a reason for it, I at least am, I can get behind people thinking through it. And then I, of course, we all have our separate taste and politic and what we believe is quote unquote right and wrong. But even in Gloria, there are some interesting nuanced things that are complicated. Yeah. So the African-American character in the first act is silent for most of the play, right? He says very little And he's mostly just working in the background. Listening to music. Right? So it's like, okay, at the surface level, what is that saying? What is that communicating? Mm -hmm. Right? As we dig into the play and understand that it's also written by a young black man. Mm -hmm. um, Which I think a lot of people weren't aware of. Yeah. You know, I've talked to a few people and they're all kind of surprised by that fact. Yeah. It's, I don't. It's interesting, right? right we did yeah, not yeah. lead our marketing yeah. with come to this black person's no, play. No, right, right. But also, I guess the way that was written made it, people just made assumptions about it too because 
the black character is almost a token character. Yeah. Right? Is it mostly white people talking? Yeah. But I think what Brandon Jacob Jenkins is doing is drawing our attention to that reality. That mm-hmm. literally forefronted are these two white folks, Annie and Dean, yeah. talking and talking and talking yeah. as an Asian American woman and a black person are literally behind them. That's yeah. how the desks were set up. Mm-hmm. And it's not like we followed the script. I mean, our set designer did magic and she like, but that's part of the script. Right, right. Um, and I think it's actually really an interesting and critical part of the script. And then to have him become these other two characters that continue to work in the background. Um, and what does that labor look like? What does that work look like? And to draw attention to it, I think works in favor of that mm-hmm. text. And I think is worth the expense. So there's a loss in terms of watching this person just sit there. What is the gain? And the gain comes when Nan messes up his name, right? And we are not on Nan's side Mm -hmm. Uh, when she calls the African-American intern by the wrong name. And when when we hear from her that somehow his story has been completely written out of this tragic experience that all of these colleagues go through. So those, to me, are the moments that I want the audience to sit with. Mm. You heard the audience react every time she calls him Mark instead of Miles. Mm -hmm. There's an audible reaction. You don't get that reaction without the way Miles was set up in Act 1. So if I turn it into pretty simplistic economic terms of gains and losses... My gain there was worth it for me. Yeah. Because uh, you can't always have a gain. There's always a loss in a gain in any sort of situation. I think so. I mean, I think every decision, you win some, you lose some. And I want to make sure what I'm gaining is worth what I'm losing mm-hmm. with every artistic decision I make. And there's also a reality that, like, I have try- I am someone that likes to make people happy. <laughs> and I've tried to make everybody happy, and I can't. Yeah. I need to stop. Um. And this play, I resisted it within the process for a while. I was like, why did I pick? Why did we pick this? What did you thought do? it was like too intense? I I just thought these and, people are so shitty. Hmm. The characters in there, there's just such shitty characters. As in they are shitty people. They're really well drawn out. No, right. Super rot. They're not people characters. that you'd want to hang out with. No. At least I, I think, yeah, yeah. And they do horrible things and the play's so traumatic. And I was like, what am I, what are we perpetuating here? And I suddenly realized what was happening was that I really identify with all of those characters, all of those very shitty characters across race and gender and sexuality. And I was seeing myself portrayed honestly and in a way that it is noting on my own privileges and is hard to watch and is hard to swallow. Mm-hmm. Um, and I realized that a lot of my work in the past, the oppressor and the oppressed have been very clear. This is the bad guy. And the bad guy looks like Trump or whatever, mm-hmm. right? Like this, we know what they look like. That's not always real. And I am complicit in the perpetuation of these systems. I know that. And this play calls me out on that. And I was uncomfortable with myself mm. watching this work and knowing that I connected to it so deeply that I have fought for the right to tell the story of my own pain in ways that Kendra fought. And that discomfort was leading me to think that this play was bad or that people wouldn't like me. And that is maybe true Mm. for some folks, for some audience members. But all of a sudden I was like, no, this is so crucial for me right now. This is so exactly where I need to be. And I 
it's not gonna for me it doesn't work anymore to paint some clear picture about oppressors and oppressed right it's about the it's about the systems there are systems in place and we keep them in place and so i think that's why this play is so smart it's starting to address the system, the hiring process of baby boomers, literally like the set designers, brilliant Katie Federer designed the set and thinking about the exposing of the literal structure that we're in, mm. right? What is behind and underneath these walls and above our ceilings? And so once that part of the play clicked, I could get behind it with my full self and it hurt, but it felt right at least. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think I thought it was really powerful. I thought the dialogue was really strong. It just sucked me in, and I think I mentioned that it was it had a, it was really visceral because it was such a close, intimate space. Uh, so it made you feel like you're part of that office. Yeah. The one thing that I did think about was who was who was the audience meant to be for? You know, you know, like I look at them like who exactly? Because I, I think about this a lot whenever I'm in a theater, especially watching. Um, play shows, movies about race, identity, gender, because especially in movie theaters, you pay attention to where people laugh. Yes. You know, and then those laughter reveals what the audience feels or thinks, you know, because I just saw like, I just saw Spike Lee's Black Klansman. Yes, me too. And I also saw Crazy Rich Asians. And I always noticed like where I laughed was very different than where the rest of the crowd laughed, and I watched them both in the Squirrel Hill, which it was mostly white audience, mm-hmm. right? Um, and something I always think about. Yeah, I mean, I think seeing, I think paying attention to the audience is really smart and really interesting, and it was surprising during Gloria. There mm-hmm. were surprise laughs. Yeah. They were like, oh, I did not think. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, yeah. now I know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think the question of who is that play for and what who the audience is supposed to root for is at... It's structural crust. The fact that you can't answer it mm-hmm. is like what the play is about. Yeah. So often when you do like text analysis, the, one of the first questions you ask is like, whose play is it? So in Romeo and Juliet, whose play is it? And it could be Romeo's or it could be Juliet's, but the production you direct, yeah. depending on who you pick, they're different mm-hmm. plays, you know? And I think in that example, either argument could be made, but I bet more people have made the Romeo argument for a long time for a lot of reasons, many of them problematic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> When you start to try to figure out whose play is it with Gloria, there's like literally no right answer. Right. They're, well, like you said, they're all terrible human beings. And none of them have a complete catharsis. There's no one climax. And each act, I think, presents a different person whose play it could be. And actors play multiple characters. And those are all written in. Right. And so there's a version of the play where you could argue that it's Dean's play. Where I think at least the first scene is set up like new york is set up to be dean's play he goes through the most change and survives it mm-hmm. the second act the first there's like two halves to the starbucks right scene. right right um and so there's and then it switches over and, to the um where it switch over to the script right where nan gets her meeting right right so like whose play is it or do you track an actor is it possibly erica cuenca's play who plays Gloria and Nan. Mm. I don't know. Um, so I think the fact that you can't answer that question is really critical to a play about who gets to tell the story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think he's a genius. I yeah. think the fact that you can't answer that question, because I thought I was somehow 
like you figured bad it out at my job. Oh, oh. I was oh. like, I don't know whose play it is. Oh, yeah. like, that's supposed to be like step one theater analysis. Yeah. You know, I'm like, I don't know. Yeah. Well, no, I think it's interesting also because like in art, I think it's asked a lot, but it's also brushed aside just as easily. Sure. Because you don't know who your audience is and you don't have to technically deal with it. To be honest, the audience is the curator, the critic, the buyer. Sure. It's just very specific, you know? Well. And um, you can imagine the audience, but they, in most cases, the artist doesn't really, they don't care enough to dwell too deeply on it, yeah. I think. Yeah, I was grateful to see who our audience ended up being. You know, we know Hatch's audience is often people that look and feel like us, right? Yeah. It's our group, it's our community, which is queer and POC and pretty, like, coming from very educated, quote-unquote, backgrounds, different elements of privilege and different kinds of intersections. This play, I think because it was Brandon Jacob Jenkins, I think because it had some really, um, like, veteran Pittsburgh actors in it, it brought in a lot of other audiences that we don't always get, right. Hatch hasn't had in the past. So there were many, many like arts and cultural leaders that saw that play, which is awesome. And I, I think the play read for, and the play also reads so different for someone in their twenties versus someone in their forties. Like they're just, Oh yeah. <sighs> yeah. You know? Yeah. And I know we're talking about this thing that a lot of people don't know about, but all I can say is like, that play, what Brandon Jacob Jenkins has done, is also very readable, and it's totally an exciting opportunity to like pick up that script and read it. He's yeah. thought about the reader as much as he's thought about an audience member, right. which isn't always true about a play. No. So I'm like actually happy we're not sharing too many details because it is a book someone can pick up and yeah. I think have a very uh, engaging, challenging, and important couple hours. Yeah. Yeah. And now you're about to start school. You're right now getting an MFA in directing at CMU. Mm -hmm. How's that been? Um, so I am starting my second year. As of, a, of three years, right? Of three years as a John Wells MFA fellow in the directing program here. It's been uh, hard. Hard? <laughs> Why'd you decide to do it? It felt, it felt like you're doing so well with Hatch and everything. And you don't want it. And, and is it because you want to teach? So I did it for a lot of reasons. Part of it was I, I mean, I don't even know what to start with first because it feels like the first thing you say some of the, is the most important answer, but that's not true. So I did it for a lot of reasons. One, I did not study theater undergrad. So I feel like I was hungry for some just like 101 training. Mm. You know, I just wanted, like, I, I want to problematize and dismantle the canon but I don't think I can effectively do so until I understand what the canon is. Right, until you can read that, do that language. Yeah. So I wanted access to the canon. Mm. Uh, and that was going to happen at any institution. I wanted to read Shakespeare and the Greeks and Ibsen and, and know what that means as I try to like light it on fire. Um, it, and engage it with it. Yeah. Yeah. And so I wanted to know. Then I also, as I started to, like after working with Quantum, you know, I had... I've just done my fourth show with an equity, like a union cast. And so folks that are coming with a lot of experience and it's been awesome to work with them and also eye-opening to get some gaps I have in my practice. There are simple staging techniques I never learned. There are ways to think about tactics and action in a rehearsal room that I can just learn, script analysis. 
And I could learn that myself slowly through experience for sure. But I was ready for just like a punch in the gut. Yeah. Very concentrated. Yeah. I also do want the opportunity to consider university level teaching. I also needed a break. I don't know that that's what Although I've gotten. you're doing 72 hours. So I'm <laughs> yeah, like, I don't know that I, I've I gotten just... a break. <laughs> but it is at least a break from what I was doing. Yeah. I didn't know this then, but now I know I went to grad school because I wanted to be an artist and not just a director. Mm-hmm. And I think those are two very different words. And that's probably the best part about the program I'm in. How would you distinguish the two? I think a director, if they're not thinking about what it means to be an artist as well, can be very technically focused. I think directing, you can be a good director and simply do the, and it's not simple. I don't mean to like downplay what a director does ever because it's what I want to do with my life, but it can be more mechanical. Hmm. I think there's a possibility of it being mechanical. I think an artist, I think the responsibilities that are come with someone using that word as well, at least the way I use it, include an understanding of context and history and challenging conversation and norms and trying to push towards a future that could potentially be missed. Mm. <laughs> and for me, what it translates to, I should be more specific to me, for me, the difference, how I like actualize it, I think director ordeal goes from job to job. And when I get a director job, I think about that play. I think about that team. I create that universe. The play opens. I leave. Mm-hmm. Artist to deal is working on a long-term sustainable practice. What do I read every day? How do I process it every week? What are the things that push me forward? What am I thinking about? I think being an artist, you center and invest in your own questions, meaning you have to have questions and I just, I have to pay attention to my sustained practice, regardless of if I'm working on a show or not. And that's happened in grad school. That, or that, or just the opening my eyes to that need and that desire mm-hmm. that I want to always have certain elements to a practice. And that could look like, so I'm trying to do simple things like, can I spend 20 minutes every day hanging out on Ubu web with no direction? <laughs> I usually lose my mind within 10. I know. Like, I can't really last. There's, there's, but there's some gems on there. Right. Yeah. And how can I just, just screw around? Yeah. And then can I once a week give myself an hour to just free write and bubble map with no intention behind it? Mm-hmm. I am not great at it yet. It's, just it's, the consistency it's hard. of it. I mean, I've told myself that too. Like have this like spend an hour writing or like practice writing by writing a review of what I just read, even though it won't be, uh, even though it won't be read by anyone, but just practice processing what I read. Because a lot of times, you read things and you don't quite know what happened, or you don't have anyone to discuss it with, so it sort of slips from your mind very easily. Yeah. Do you have any things that you do consistently? Have you found stuff that like has worked for you? Um, when I have a studio, I try to just force myself to be in studio. So like it's sort of like my working outfit, uh, just by physical location. Yeah. So like, you know, if that means like getting dressed and walking out for even like you know thirty minutes to travel to go to another place, like I could do it, and then I give myself the freedom to do whatever I want in that space. So if the, so if that just means going to studio just so I could read emails. Um, that's okay because at least I'm like forcing myself to go to a location with a task, and that then allows me to like. If I want to read, if I want to just 
doodle, you know, do things that are unrelated to art, but like I'm in an art, my mentally, I'm in an art space. Yeah. But that makes a lot of sense. And I think I'd be curious how that translates for a theater artist. That's not a part of like a building or an institution. Yeah. Yeah. But even just having an office space would start to do that. Yeah. For me. No, that actually feels like a very tangible solution. Yeah. And I try to surround myself with books so that like, if I do get bored, I can always grab a book and just start reading, you know? And I think one of the things that I do like reading are like really hard to read um, critical theory books. Well, um, <laughs> and oftentimes I don't get anywhere with them. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, it, someone once described reading philosophy and critical theory as sort of like entering a sort of hallucinogenic state. Because you sort of have to make a leap of faith to believe that this logic actually makes sense, right? And you find yourself staring at the same page over and over and over again. Eventually, your mind just like accepts the sort of craziness and nonsensicalness of the logic that these people are talking about. And then my mind then goes oftentimes, sometimes will go somewhere else, which is where I want it to go. And I like that that way of thinking about it is pretty forgiving too. Because I think when I'm reading, I'm supposed to like, that there's supposed to oh, be something you have that to happens, get it. But when yeah. you're hallucinating, you just do what you do. Yeah, like it's yeah. a magical experience that you yeah. have no control over. Yeah. So the idea that I can like remove some control is kind of nice. Yeah. It's actually a relaxing thing to that. Yeah, yeah. It makes it a little bit more accessible. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I wish I could read more critical theory. It it hurts. It hurts. It hurts. And it, it's like a steep learning curve. Like it took me a while to be able to understand how to even process it, especially outside the classroom. Yes. It's easier in the classroom. Yeah. Because I'm okay with deadlines. With those, yeah, yeah. 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 But on your own, it, it definitely gets more difficult. A lot of like nodding the head and falling asleep as you're reading like two pages over the course of two hours. Yes. You know, and being like, I'm like, why is it written like this? Yeah. I'm certain. I'm not at the point yet where I can articulate the whys. I will be some point. Yeah. No, it doesn't have to be. I think a lot of it has to do with they're just bad writers. <laughs> you know? Sure. Like, it doesn't have to be written that poorly. And some, I think sometimes it does make, conceptually make sense. So, like, you know, a lot of very specific philosophers who are trying to deconstruct language to the point where the, the actual thing that you're reading is deconstructed to almost meaninglessness. Yeah. But out beyond those reasons, a lot of times I think it's just bad writing or bad translation, right? It's, also it's, bad. it's, um, I think someone once said like the interns who are releasing these art press release to the public are copying like American theory writers who are copying, uh, either English or French well, philosophers who are then copying German philosophers. And so everyone's just copying each other's bad writing. So by the time that it gets released in the language that you're in, it's just so broken down, right? Whoa. I mean, I would love to watch something that, like... That process. That processes yeah, that. Yeah, Or, like, somehow, I mean, but you'd have to... Yeah. That'd be a, a worthwhile exploration. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have, is there anything else they missed? Any projects coming up via your uh, master's program? Oh, fun. <laughs> no? Yeah, no, yeah, no, there are, there are. <laughs> that was, a, that yeah. was a nervous laugh. Well, you'll see what. So, what, so why the nervous laugh now is because <laughs> I'm in the middle of putting together my proposals for my thesis. Okay. 
So I have to propose five ideas. Um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to have like a list of 10. And what I'm learning, which is really interesting, I, so, um, so I have to go backwards a little bit. My second year, I'm about to do Carlos Murillo's Dark Player Stories for Boys. Okay. It's like a really powerful investigation of catfishing. Okay. Um, and kind of a, a leap into thinking about like in a world full of screens, how different um, if what you want is a like human touch, if what's missing is human touch, mm-hmm. are sex and violence, what are the lines of sex and violence? Mm. Um, what are the lines of love and violence um, when you haven't seen a person or been around a person? I think is what the heartbeat of that play for me is right now, right now. And when I was looking for that play, when I was looking for Gloria, those happened around the same time in my life. I spent about a year and a half not reading any work by white men. Okay. I only read plays by queer folks, uh, gender queer folks, women and people of color. Mm-hmm. Right. And those intersections. Because I realized up until a year ago, up until like six months ago, I never directed a play that wasn't by a white man. It's hard. It's hard to escape it. <laughs> oh my you god! Know? Part of it is one of my best friends in the world, who's my collaborator, is a white man, and I've yeah, directed yeah, a lot yeah. of his plays. But I was just like, I, that needs to change. Well, the white canon is strong. It is. It's strong. Yeah. Ugh. So I read all POC writers uh-huh. and women, and I was trying to really shift that. And then three plays in a row, I got to work on plays by people of color and women and queer folks. So really pumped about what these three plays in a row are like. But for my thesis, I'm finding that I have a deep desire to adapt and to dig into the canon. Like I'm into your own. Yeah. Yeah. And understand the canon and connect to a Western history that I am a part of and I want to claim space in Mm -hmm. and has molded my ideas just as much as Islamic doctrine has molded my ideas and Eastern experience. You know, like that is a part of me and there is a certain, it's a different tool when you work on stuff that everyone has some connection to. Part of what made glory so special is most people had no idea what was about to happen. Uh, Part of what makes Antigone so special is most people know what's about to happen or Romeo and Juliet's a better example. Right. Right. So, I find myself looking thoughts. at canon. Um, I'm looking at Ibsen. I'm looking at Chekhov. I'm looking at the Greeks. And it's weird. Because <laughs> I pushed against it for so long. Yeah, yeah. And because, so Carnegie Mellon School of Drama, like many other institutions, especially cultural institutions, are going through a really difficult time around what work they choose to present. You know, and our work has historically been really hegemonic. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a real concerted effort on all levels to diversify the playwrights on our stage as our student populations become more and more intersectional every year. And so I really believe in that. And when I curate programming and when I look at artists, I really right. believe in like having many different kinds of thinking going into a collected season. But I'm now about to pitch canon. Yeah. And I'm one of the few directors of color in the building. So there's a certain responsibility I do feel that as a director of color, I should be pushing forward more and more playwrights of color. 
and I and I'm one of the gatekeepers. I get to pick a play. Mm-hmm. So if I only pitch POC writers, then you know. And there's also this really complicated conversation around who gets to direct what work. And I've definitely been in a position where I don't think a white person should direct a play about blackface. I don't think that. Mm-hmm. I disagree with that. But then if a black person isn't, you know, they want to direct canon, then what happens to that blackface play? Will it ever be done? Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe it shouldn't, but Brandon Jacob Jenkins has another play called An Octoroon that looks at blackface and is a really powerful play and I would want it to be done, but I think it matters on who gets to do it. I mm-hmm. think that's relevant. But uh, it's a, it feels like a pit that I just keep digging and I really feel like I can't breathe when I'm in it because every answer feels like it has 10 more questions. Right. Um, but I know for my educational purposes, I want to learn how to adapt something. I've never done that. I want to be in that seat. And grad school is a really great opportunity to do that with a lot of wonderful support and mentorship and dynamic actors and designers. And I don't want to put a Greek play in a Hatch season when Hatch has such limited public performances. We do a play every other year. I don't think that's the time to do right. something like Antigone. So, yeah, that's that's why that nervous laugh. Yeah. I feel I'm in it. Yeah. I'm like really in it, but excited by the ideas. I mean, I think, I mean, I guess when you are just describing it to me, it seems like I understand where that comes from. I thought about, like, I just saw The Wiz, and that isn't an adaptation of The Wizard of Oz, but the way that it's presented, who is cast, it's very clear how it's taken from white canon, mm-hmm. you know? I also am thinking what you're talking about in terms of, like, who gets to direct the blackface, but, like, it all, I think, um, I think it all comes down to power dynamics. And so you, even though you are creating um, rules for who can do what, those rules are created in your mind because one person doing it one way leads to a more negative outcome, mm-hmm. right? So like a person of color or a black person directing about blackface, it actually doesn't change any power dynamic that already exists in the world, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You know, black people still get treated poorly. White people still do blackface. Right. Uh, but a white person doing it then perpetuates it, Yeah, you know? And it's like, no, right? It's the way the power flows. You're totally right about that. And the and what is the potential harm that that project can do? And I yeah. think there's a reality of who's in what chair and what opportunities then are and aren't available. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's like, how much of that work do I want to do while in graduate school for this institution that I'm only at for three years? That's true. And some of it, and I'm in a good position to do some of it because I do that work I'll do that work forever for the right. places I work. Yeah. You know, that yeah, that yeah. is yeah. that is just as critical to my arts practice as the yeah. colors I'm excited by. Yeah, yeah. Um but in your in an educational institution, it is an interesting conundrum. And also it goes back to audience, because you will be largely performing it for a white audience, you know? That's that's changing. Is it? Every day in that building it is. Right. It is every class so far. When you look at the four classes or three graduate year classes, each one is more and more intersectional. Who knows what that pattern looks like? Yeah, but I am genuinely inspired by the undergrads in this program and the way they think about identity 
Um, part of it is simply their generation um, in a great way. Yeah. I think young folks are tapped into these conversations uh, much more critically than I was when I was 18, for sure. Yeah. I always look at my students and I'm always like, you're getting a way better education than I, <laughs> yeah. I ever got, you know? And I don't know if that's time. It also just could be institution. Um, it could also just be access to information. So that it allows everyone collectively to be a better, you know, teacher in a sense. Yeah. I'm not sure. And things have become mainstream. A lot of the things I cared about as an undergrad have also become mainstream as stuff mm-hmm. like Insecure and Homecoming King and all these things are becoming popular media. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I still need to watch Insecure. A lot of people have told me to watch it. <laughs> yeah, I just started. Jane, race, I just so uh, finished the first season of Jane the Virgin. Also so good. Yeah, that is a ridiculous show. <laughs> yes, and the premise <laughs> makes it so I think people don't turn it on. What do you mean? Like when I heard like it's a show about... Uh, Pregnant virgin? Yeah. I was like, I don't want to watch that. Oh. <laughs> like, what, what is this? Like, <laughs> Are we going back in time? <laughs> yeah. yeah. But the, after within 10 minutes of the first episode, you're like, oh, this is golden. crazy. This yeah. is crazy. It's so good. Yeah. And what they do to telenovela, like what they do to the yeah. form. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a well done show. Yeah. 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 No, that's all. I think that's all. I've, I feel like I've labored on for a very no, long it's, time. It's great. I had a great time. Same. Yeah. Same, thank you. I feel like it's almost like it's preparing me to get school started. Is it? Was yeah. it was it too academic? Was I no, too, uh, no, it was good. I was like, oh, I haven't had to talk about these things in a uh, while. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's good to process. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, Adil. Thank you, Zewan. Yeah. Seeing Color is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Zewan Chung. Original music by Alex Chow. You can find more information on the website, www.seeingcolorpod.com or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook under the handle Seeing Color Pod. If you enjoyed this show, please go to Apple Podcasts or iTunes and give Seeing Color a five-star review. This really helps others discover the show and provides greater visibility for everyone on Seeing Color. Again, thank you so much for listening and goodbye for now.